1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel 7. Remember, 1 and 2 Samuel, they were originally one book, so it's hard to kind of divide the themes up between 1 and 2 Samuel. But 1 Samuel seems to focus a little bit more on lessons from the heart. David is a man after God's own heart, and we'll get into him a little bit more in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Samuel, it, it seems to teach us good lessons and bad lessons from the heart. And we've been looking at quite a few negative lessons, but we're going to look at a good one tonight, a uh, heart that God can help. Now, chapter 6 started with the Philistines sending the ark away and ended with the Israelites at Beth Shemesh also sending the ark away. In other words, neither the Philistines nor the people of Beth Shemesh repented when God dealt with them. And so, sadly, things continue as they were in Israel before the ark had been captured, even though it was back in Israeli hands again. But, you know, maybe you've experienced this. Something happens when you, you've replaced God with religion, and then all of a sudden that religion is stripped from you. It leaves you with a leanness in your soul that's no longer hidden by form and ritual. And when someone responds to that by crying out to the Lord... It reveals a heart that God can finally help. So we're going to look at that tonight as Israel returns to the Lord in chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So if you remember, when the people of Beth Shemesh, God judged them, they cried out, who can stand before this holy God? They should have said that before they decided to make the, the ark a, a cake topper. And so they sent messengers to the nearest city on the way to Shiloh, which is where the ark belonged in the tabernacle. And they said, come fetch it. Uh, you know, it can't stay here anymore, just like the Philistines had done. So verse 1 of chapter 7 picks up that, picks up from there. The men of Kirjath-Jerim, they came and they fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab uh, in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So Kirjath-Jerim is about halfway between Beth Shemesh and Jerusalem, but it's just the first large town on the way to Shiloh. Uh, Abinadab is most likely a Levite who lived on the hill just outside the town uh, because uh, I can't see any way that God would allow it to stay there if it wasn't, you know, someone who was allowed to handle it. So um, they brought it into his home and they sanctified or set apart, this was going to be his job from now on, Eliezer, his son, uh, not, to, not to be a priest, it was just to keep it, to watch over it and to guard it. So that's his job. Now, why not continue the journey uh, toward Shiloh? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, we do know the high priest family experienced a lot of death. Eli was dead. His two sons were dead. Um, there's no mention of the tabernacle actually being used during this time period. So it is possible there was nothing to take it to. Some scholars believe the Philistines actually destroyed Shiloh. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But the point being is, whatever the reason, they didn't feel like it was the best idea to take it back to Shiloh. And so the people of this town decided to set a guard on it in these troubled times. Um, they learned the lesson of Beth Shemesh, God is holy and to be obeyed. He's not to be treated like an idol to be gawked at. And so, you know, they make sure no one goes and looks at this thing that's not supposed to, and they put this guy in charge of it. And so verse 2 tells us, it came to pass that while the ark was there in Kirjath-Jerim, 
that the time was long. And we're not talking, you know, six months of a pandemic we've had to endure. This is 20 years, 20 long years. And it says that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, Israel, in the time before the ark was captured, they had grown used to no Bible teaching. The Levites weren't doing their job. They had grown used to corrupt spiritual leaders. The priests weren't doing their job. And going to worship the Lord had left a bad taste in their mouth, remember? But at least, at least it had still been there if they wanted to do it, right? They could still go to church if they wanted to. They could still worship the Lord if they wanted to. But not anymore. And for 20 long years, all of that was stripped away. You know, I've wondered uh, during this pandemic, what would happen in the United States if church became illegal, you know? Or if Bibles were forbidden? Or if we had to sing silently like they did at one time in China because they would get arrested for singing out loud? Or if meeting with other believers put your life at risk? What if all the excitement and all the energy of going to church was gone? Would people still hold to their faith? Well, truth is, we don't have to imagine. You know, we did church via you know, streaming only for, for just three months. We still had our Bibles. We still had our freedom. We weren't in any danger. But the normal structure of worship was gone, kind of like Israel here. And what's been the reaction? Well, on July 8th, 2020, Barna Research released their 2020 State of the Church report. That report sadly showed that 32%, that's one-third, 32% of practicing Christians in the United States have dropped out of church completely since the pandemic began. 32%. They're not streaming, they're not attending, nothing. They're not associated with church anymore. That tells me that if the church had been important to them at one time, it had been important for the wrong reasons. Now, now that those reasons are gone, well, <laughs> frankly, it's not very exciting to wear a mask to go to church. It's not very exciting to socially distance. It's not very exciting to watch a service online, although I do realize my handsome face is still there. Just as it wouldn't be very exciting to put your life at risk or to sing silently because you might get arrested if you sang out loud or to study the few pages of the Bible because that's all that has been able to be smuggled to you. We're doing 2 Timothy 2 again? Yeah, it's the only page we have. Those aren't very exciting things either. I'm sure that when all this happened, that some in Israel decided, wow, I guess, you know, worship really isn't that important to me. It was never really important in the first place. Now that all the exciting parts were gone. But this report from the Barna Research Group found something else. Of those 32% who said they had dropped out of church completely, they were more likely to say they struggled with anxiety now, boredom, and insecurity more likely to struggle with those things than those who still regularly attended church. Now, 
Let me be the first to say that God sometimes allows anxiety, boredom, and insecurity to surface in our lives to stretch us and to draw us close to him. That doesn't automatically mean you're not walking with the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. But those things can be an indicator of a leanness of soul, exposing the lack of God's presence in my life. Because the Bible describes that we were created that way. Now, not originally created that way in the sense that um, there wasn't a solution, an obvious solution for it, a perfect solution for it. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, uh, it says that God designed us, he created us. Well, let me just read it, Romans eight twenty. He says, for the creation was made subject to emptiness. And that wasn't by our choice. It's not like, you know, we had a vote in this. It's not like God said, you know, how should I make people? You know, and then he made the first person and he said, well, you know, do this and this and this, you know. And actually, put this little, like, God-shaped hole in my heart because that'll remind me I need you. That wasn't our choice. God did this. But it was by reason of him who had subjected the same in hope. God wanted us to be those who are hoping in him, who are looking to him for our answers because if we don't, we're gonna be in trouble. (laughs) If we look elsewhere, we look to ourselves, we're gonna be in trouble. So God subjected us to this. He made us, he created us, designed us this way. Now, in, in the garden, they didn't sense any of that because the Lord walked with them through the cool of the day. They had everything they needed. They were, there was no sin. It was, it was evident they always needed the Lord and they were happy with that. But now in the fall, sometimes we, we can think we don't need that. And so God has designed us this way so that when we stop following him, we stop you know, being in his presence, like Adam and Eve were, that we begin to experience this emptiness, a leanness of soul to show our need. Now, when you and I participate in worship, even if we're not worshipers, when we participate in worship, God's presence in the midst of others who are genuinely worshiping him, it can cover up that absence in my life. I can emotionally feed off that and not realize my spirit is dry. But when I opt out of worship completely, that illusion is shattered. And so for 20 long years, Israel didn't worship. And as their leanness grew, that emptiness became more apparent to them, they realized what they had lost. And so it says they lamented after the Lord. It's interesting, that word lamented it's, it's a unique word. It's only used a few times in Scripture. But it means to pursue someone, to, to pursue them wherever they go with requests and complaints until they respond. Kind of like my kids when they were little. <laughs> you know, dad, 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 dad. <laughs> they were crying out to the Lord. Now, when this word is used in the Scripture to refer to crying out to the Lord, It means to wail with sincere remorse. They were pouring out their heart to the Lord. Things are bad, God. We realize how far away you are from us and how bad that is. And it's not good. Will you come back, Lord? Can we come back? That's what they're doing. They are sincerely sorry for, for what they had done to the Lord and how they'd forsaken him and how now they've realized what, what's happened because of it. They didn't want to return to religion. They cried out for their relationship with the Lord to be restored. And so, eventually, in crying out, they turned to the one person they knew still had a relationship with the Lord, to Samuel. 
Look at verse three. And Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, now, when it says all the house of Israel, it means they came to him. You know, they came to him for answers. They said, what do we do, Samuel? Samuel, we want the Lord back. What do we do? And so Samuel spoke unto all the house of Israel, saying, if you do return unto the Lord with all your heart, then put away the strange gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only. And he will also, doesn't say also, but that's, he adds this in, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It was likely part of their complaint was also the oppression of the Philistines. Now, Samuel's kind of got three parts to this response that he has. The first part, he says, if you do return unto the Lord with all your heart, if it, in other words, well, let me, let me say this first. With all your hearts in the Hebrew language here, it actually comes before if you do return. So in other words, he says, if with all your heart, you're, you're indeed returning, you know, with all your, the word there for hearts means your mind, your soul. Um, you know, the, the part of us that, that is deciding what we're going to do with our lives. If, if you are truly sincere in returning to the Lord, you know, then this is what you need to do. Now, half-heartedly returning to the Lord usually means I am returning for the wrong reasons, you know. Uh, you know, I don't like my circumstances or, you know, I don't like the way I feel, um, being sad about my circumstances is not being the same as being sad about where my relationship with the Lord is. For example, repentance looks like this. Turn over to, to James 4. Just after the book of Hebrews, James 4, and verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> now, James is not uh, the easiest guy to read. And you have to take in, into mind that he's writing to people who have been persecuted. So, I mean, James, he's hardcore. Um, and he loved the Lord, and he was serious about his walk with the Lord, and it comes out in his letter to them. But he tells these folks who, you know, are, are struggling, going through a really rough time, you know, and he, he deals with their hearts. And in verses 8 through 10, he has a lot to say throughout his letter, but in verses 8 through 10, he says, listen, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. That's what repentance looks like, you know? Uh, for re repentance, it starts with the, with the mind and the heart first, okay? Um, it's a choice to think differently. So that's what he's saying here. You know, draw near to God. The idea is before you were finding some other solution to your problems. But now draw near to the Lord and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. You got to deal with the inside first, you know, be afflicted, mourn, weep. Instead of, you know, you know, longing for the days of laughter and where things were great and wonderful and everything was exactly how you liked it, mourn over your sin, you know, grieve over your sin. That's a, the word heaviness means lament, just like Israel was doing here. Humble yourselves, you know, in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. So this concept of, of, of wholehearted repentance, of wholeheartedly returning to the Lord, it, it starts with your, in, on the inside. It's a choice to think differently. It's a decision to approach life God's way instead of my way. And so Samuel says, if you're sincerely repenting, well, here's the appropriate course of action. This is... This is what that looks like. And so he tells them, put away, you know, the strange gods from among you. Put away the Ashtaroth from among you and serve him only. 
The strange gods just means gods of other lands, foreigners' gods. You know, the, the, you have a god, Israel. You don't need to turn to any other gods. The Astaroth, well, that, she was the Canaanite goddess of fertility and love, a constant stumbling block to the nation of Israel. And he says, you got you to cut this off, you know, from among you. Now, when he says from among you, Samuel's not saying it's okay to have, like, private idols in your home. That's not his point. But he's saying if you really are returning to the Lord, then the public idols got to go. They got to be torn down. They can't remain. You know, I think it's important to understand that sincere repentance does not make a person sinless. <laughs> you know, when you sincerely have a heart of repentance, that doesn't make you sinless. You know, you can love God supremely and still discover idols in your heart as you grow in your life. You know, I, I, at, the, at the risk of sounding, you know, uh, like the great uh, wisdom, the wise person, uh, Shrek the ogre. Christians are like onions, we have layers. You know, the Lord, honestly, if he had confronted me when I was 15, a very young believer, with the things he's dealing with me now, I'd have probably been like, there ain't no way I could do this Christian thing. So throughout our lives, you know, the Lord, he, he peels back a layer and he exposes an idol. You know, he exposes something that doesn't please him. Doesn't mean I didn't love him supremely, you know, but now I've got a new confrontation, you know, and it's time to knock down the idol. And the Lord, you can love the Lord supremely and, and find those things throughout your life as he pulls back the next layer, you know. But, you know, we, we're not going to be fully done. Paul the apostle, he said, you know, I have not apprehended that for which I was apprehended for. You know, I'm not there yet, he says. You know, I have not laid hold fully on what God saved me for. I'm still a work in progress. I know Paul loved God supremely. But, while that's true, a repentant heart does not leave a huge idol standing in the front yard. And so Israel needed to deal with this. Get rid of it. Now, repentance isn't just turning away from something, it's turning towards something. And so he says, prepare, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. The word prepare there means to fix, to firmly establish. It's the opposite of wavering, you know, uh, of, of waffling, you know. He says, no more waffling on your spiritual loyalty. You know, decide today to serve the Lord alone. Very similar to what Joshua uh, said to the nation of Israel before he died. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. If it be the Lord, then serve the Lord. If it's going to be the Balim, the gods, then do that. But you need to, you can't be in between, and Samuel says, if you'll do this, well, the Lord will also rescue you from the Philistines, just like God had always promised he would. You know, I imagine that the Philistines had gotten back on their feet in the 20 years after the ark uh, debacle. Israel likely had to yield a lot of their land and some of their freedoms, maybe paying tribute, I don't know. But I do know this, one of the things I love about the Lord is how he handles our forgiveness you know what I'm glad the Lord doesn't do? You know, I, 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 I've been in management a lot of my life. And, and you know, and someone blows it, they break trust. And you kind of got your eye on them after that, right? You know, you, you know, you, okay, well, all right. Well, there's, you know, here's the consequences for that and let's work through it, you know. But you still got your eye on them. I'm so grateful that when the Lord forgives, he doesn't give, give us the evil eye, you know, when we show up, you know, the next day. 
He doesn't look at us and go. Once we've come home, he truly acts as if we never left. He's like the father with the prodigal son. He truly acts as if we never left. I love that about him. Do you realize how much the Lord loves you? You know, what his forgiveness means for you? How much he wants to bless you and work in your life? Well, Israel says, we'll do that. Verse 4, then the children of Israel, they did put away Balim, their idols, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And so Samuel, when the, once they had done that, he said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'm going to pray unto the Lord for you. Let's, let's get this right. Now that you've done that, let's make this right. And, and that's the idea. The, the Mizpah was, it, it, the word Mizpah just means watchtower. Uh, there are tons of cities named Mizpah throughout Israel because they had lots of these watchtowers. Uh, this particular location it, it was nearby um, Shiloh, and uh, it was a common gathering site when the nation had to make important decisions. When we read in the book of Judges and they had to decide what to do with the atrocity committed by the uh, uh, by the people of the town of Gibeon and Benjamin, they came to Mizpah to make that decision. So this is a place where they came to make important decisions. And so he says, come, let's gather. This is important. And he says, I will pray for you unto the Lord. In other words, I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive you and restore your relationship. And so they gathered together to Mizpah. And it says here they, they drew water. They went and got water. And they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day. And they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. Now, this concept, we are poured out like water. Um, that phrase, that idea, um, it's a common phrase in the Middle East to show you have a desperate need. You know, basically what they're saying is, Lord, we've been poured out. We, we got nothing left. If you don't restore us, if you don't rescue us from our enemies, we are done for. It's over for us. And, and I, I realize that, you know, some people do that in like an accusative way or a legalistic way. Like, you know, as if, well, I'm only in trouble because, you know, God dropped the ball. You know, if he had just gotten me that promotion or if, you know, this had happened, you know, I don't understand why God always, you know, doesn't take care of me. Um, obviously, you can say it like that, um, you know, or that God owes you something. I don't understand. I go to church and I do this and that and, you know, why did God let this happen? Um, but that's, I don't think that's what Israel's saying here. In fact, that's why what Israel says next was so important. You know, they say, we have sinned against the Lord. They, they pour out the water saying, Lord, we got nothing left. We need you. If you don't come through for us, we are in big, big trouble. Um, and, and, and then they say, because Lord, this is our fault. We did this, not you. You know, anyone can make excuses Anyone can blame other people. In fact, I think it takes very little effort to call out the Lord for what we see as his blunders or his unfairness. But only a humble person is honest enough to declare, God, this one's on me. You don't owe me anything. And I'm coming to you now not because I deserve anything from you, but because I need mercy and grace. And that's the person that's the heart that God can help. In James 5.5, 5, it tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives what to the humble? Grace. Grace. What's grace? 
Grace is big. It's God's unmerited favor lavished upon, just overflowing towards those who don't deserve any of it. You know, the infinitely ill-deserving, as one of my teachers at school said. And it's big because it goes beyond just salvation. It's like for everything. I can come to him, you know, if I, whatever my need is, and I can come on the basis of his grace. If I humble myself and come on the basis of his grace, it, it, can, it can work in my life. You know, so if I'm struggling with a sin or if I'm struggling with a relationship or if I'm, you know, battling an illness, if I'm, if I'm discouraged, you know, if I'm experiencing anxiety, if, I'm, if I need salvation, you know, if, if I have an enemy that's, you know, mistreating me, I can come to the Lord and I can say, Lord, I'm not coming to you on the basis of anything you owe me, you know. I realize that I put myself in this mess. I don't need to blame Adam. I don't need to blame anybody else. I put myself in this mess. I, I chose my own ways. But Lord, I need help. And I'm coming to the one, only one who can help me. And I come to you on the basis of the cross, on the basis of your grace, on the basis of what Jesus did, not on what, how good I am. And the Lord says that he's near to those who are like that. That's a heart that God can help. Is that your heart? Well, anytime you come back to the Lord... You can always expect that the enemy will be right on your heels. And so it's no surprise here that in verse 7 it says, And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, It says here that the Philistines did this when they heard that all Israel had gathered together. It's possible that Israel gathering together had violated some agreement not to organize, not to assemble. Um, I don't know. Uh, But whatever the reason, they didn't like it and they decided to put a stop to it. And so I would encourage you, I'd warn you and encourage you, never be surprised when the enemy attacks fiercely just after you make an important commitment to the Lord. I frequently, I have people who, you know, who will contact me and they'll say, Pastor Will, we prayed, you know, we prayed on Sunday and, you know, my week's gone horrible. <laughs> and I have to say, well, that makes sense, you know, that makes sense because the enemy, he already knows he can't take on the Lord. He knows he can't beat the Lord and now you've aligned with the Lord and the Lord's ally with you. He knows he can't beat that. So he's going to try to discourage and derail you before you can very, get very far in the right direction. He's going to try to get you to run away again before, you know, you get more solidified in your alliance with the Lord. That's why 1 Peter chapter 5, 8 commands us to be sober and vigilant because our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom you may devour. Our enemy doesn't wait for us to settle into our changed life, these new decisions, this new way of living. He doesn't play fair. He wants to get us to run. He wants to get us to give up. Now, thankfully, Israel doesn't run, but they do know they're doomed if the Lord doesn't help them. They said to Samuel, cease not to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. The the phrase cease not means please don't be silent to ask God for help. We can't do this on our own. We did that last time. We brought the ark with us. It was a mess. So please don't be silent. You know, it 
Maybe you do this. Someone shares with you a struggle they have, you pray with them, and you say to them, you know, hey, you know, I'll be praying for you. And you mean it, right? But then life gets in the way, you get busy and you forget. Don't forget. Don't forget to cry out to the Lord when someone shares something with you. I know in my younger years, you know, I would, someone would share something with me and I would say, well, I'll pray for you about that. And I mean, if it was really rough, I would probably remember it. But a lot of times, I didn't mean to forget it. I meant what I said, but I would forget. More than ever, you know, as I get older, and I see the power of prayer. I see how God moves mightily in people's lives. I tell myself, I say, well, remember to pray for that person. Don't forget. Don't be silent when they have a need. You know, it's, you've been in the fire before. I imagine most of you have been. It's not easy. It means a lot when someone tells you, I've been praying for you. Because you can feel very alone when you're in the fire. So when someone else tells you they're in the fire, don't be silent, you know? Pray for them. Remember to pray for them. Well, I love how Israel also says here, cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us. Very often when we study the Bible, we see people get in a mess and they come to, the, to godly men or women you know, that they know and they'll say, pray to the Lord your God. And it'll say that, pray to the Lord your God. Israel's genuine repentance is shown here that they own the Lord. He is our God. Even in this trial, even in this danger, even in this fear, I say, pray to the Lord our God. I love that. It shows that they'd really genuinely come back to the Lord. And Samuel doesn't forget. Verse 9, it says, and Samuel took a, a, King James says, sucking lamb. It, It just means a lamb who was still on its mother's milk. And that was a lamb that could be offered as an offering. Um, Unlike Beth Shemesh's disobedient offerings that violated Scripture, Samuel's offering is in accordance with Scripture. In Leviticus 22:27, it tells you that in these unique circumstances, you can offer one that's of this age. And so that's what Samuel does. And he offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. Now, a burnt offering was always to be holy unto the Lord. Um, holy, W-H-O, not H-O. Uh, holy means completely. The idea was is God ate the whole thing. You know, you offered it to God and he ate the whole thing. And obviously the Lord's not physically eating food, but that meant that the entire sacrifice, every bit of it, cooked on the altar. You didn't get a portion to eat. The priest didn't get a portion to eat. Everything went to the Lord because what it symbolized was absolute surrender, you know, to the Lord's leadership, to the Lord's rule in your life. And so Samuel takes this and he offers it as a burnt offering holy unto the Lord, saying, the whole nation is, is yielded to you, Lord. They are completely surrendered to you right now. Please answer them. In other words, this is different than Beth Shemesh. This is no party, you know. This is no celebration here. Not that it's bad to do a celebration in the right circumstances. But this was an offering of surrender, saying, Lord, whatever happens, we will continue to follow you. But please come to our aid. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel. And I love it. And the Lord, King James says, heard him, but it means the Lord responded to him. You know, God had been answering Samuel for many years. That's what made him so um, well-known in Israel is that, you know, this is a time when the word of God was, there was a famine of the word of God. No one was speaking, you know, for the Lord. And so when Samuel all of a sudden started saying, hey, I've got a word from the Lord, that was new, it was amazing. Wow, God's speaking to us still. 
And so Samuel had been hearing God answer him for many years. But this is the first time in a long time that God has replied to the nation. Isn't God good? They don't have to earn their way back into his good graces. They don't have to achieve a certain sense of spirituality before God will bless them and speak to them and answer again. I love that scripture in 2 Timothy 2.13. It says when we are faithless, literally it means when we are unbelieving, he is faithful still, for he cannot deny himself. It's who he is. He's just faithful. He's always honoring his word. He always keeps his promises. I love how God responds. Verse 10, this is so cool. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. So hear this. The nation, they didn't get to hear God's answer to Samuel. Only Samuel heard it. They didn't hear God's answer. They went out to fight not knowing what God's answer was. Lord, will you please rescue us from the Philistines? They didn't know that God said, I will yet. They're out there getting in line for battle. They don't have the answer yet. And yet God had told Samuel, yeah, I'll I'll deliver them. But they didn't know any of that. I want to encourage you. Don't get discouraged if it looks like the Lord isn't answering or that he might be too late. Don't get discouraged. You only know the part that's in front of you right now. The only thing that most Israelites saw right now was the enemy running at them. You know, listening to the commands to get wherever they were supposed to be settled, to their part to defend, you know, to fight. They didn't, that's all they knew. They didn't know what was going on behind them back at at Mizpah. So recognize that, that when you look around and you go, looks like the Lord's late or looks like the Lord's not coming through, you only see what you only see. There's more going on. Don't get discouraged. Well, while that's going on, it says, as Sam was offering that, the Philistines drew near, but, I love that, But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. Boy, I would love to watch that DVD. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, it sounds cool. What does it mean? I don't know for sure. So thundered, it means to make a loud roaring sound. I mean, was it like, I mean, like there's passages in the Old Testament that says the Lord roars from heaven. I mean, is that what it sounded like? That would have been terrifying, you know? I mean, a good old Lion King show at Disney's nice, but not when I'm not expecting it. You know, sometimes when you see the, you know, the beautiful morning and the sun kind of breaking through the clouds or the sun setting at night, you know, and you just kind of, I don't maybe you don't, I look out and I'll think, wow. Rapture would be perfect right now. Like, I just, I mean, it's beautiful, Lord. It's like the perfect setting, you know? And you almost want, you know, you almost can imagine the sound of a trumpet. But this, the the phrase with a great thunder just means with a great voice. He made a loud roaring sound with a great voice. I mean... Was it a tornado? Was it a a storm? Was it lightning? Or was it just, did he just roar? I I don't know. You know, I I always kind of get my image when I read this. I get my image and, and, you know, when you read the, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, and you you get to the parts where Aslan will roar, you know, and everybody just kind of, you know. (laughs) And, And I don't know. But he said he 
did it upon the Philistines. You see, unlike Israel, who had repented at this point, well, the Philistines didn't repent when God judged them. They were still his enemies. And so the the Lord makes it clear that he is still opposed to them with a terrifying roar from heaven. Now, there's one other thing you got to consider here if you're a Philistine. Your God, Dagon, he's supposed to be the Lord of the storm, not the Israeli God. So this thunder that's coming from heaven or this roaring that's coming from heaven, that, that's where you're looking for your hope. And all of a sudden, the enemy, his God, does this to you? That just wouldn't be terrifying. That'd be hope-destroying. Now, conversely, can you imagine what that would have been like for an Israelite? I mean, you're shaking your boots, but you're trusting the Lord. Lord, whatever happens, we're not going to leave you. We're going to follow you. You're our God. And then at what seems like the last moment possible, the Lord shows up like this. The word there, discomfited, it means to throw into a panic, to throw into confusion, to cause a riot. I mean, I'm not a riot, a rout. When the Philistines hear this sound, whatever it was, from heaven, they just, they are terrified. They just run. Can you imagine what it would be like to be an Israelite? And you're wondering, this might be my last breath. But Lord, I am going to go down trusting you. And then all of a sudden the Lord comes through like that. (laughs) Yes! Like I said, I want the DVD. Like I don't just want to go to heaven and have somebody tell me. Like I want to see it, you know? I want to know what it's like to be in your shoes, to experience that. Talk about a change of perspective. Verse 11, the men of Israel, they went out of Mizpah. Charge, men, they're on the run. And they pursued the Philistines and they smoked them until they came to Bethkar. I don't know where Bethkar is. It means the house of sheep. And wherever the house of sheep was, the writer shares it as if it's a huge inroads into Philistine territory. You know, uh, no archaeologists haven't found this place. Like, that's why I say we don't know where it is. But the point is, the writer goes, that's a big deal. In fact, it was so much of a big deal that Samuel holds a special ceremony to commemorate this awesome victory. In verse 12, it says, then Samuel took a stone and he set it between Mizpah and and Shen. And Shen is another unknown location deep in uh, Philistine territory. And and he sets this stone between, you know, uh, Mizpah and, and wherever it was, the army stopped, basically. And he called the name of it, the stone, Ebenezer, saying, hitherto has the Lord helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help or witness of God's help. Uh, It was to be a memorial, you know. Uh, You may have those in your home, like maybe something to remind you of a special anniversary or maybe you have pictures of all your kids, you know, reminds you of them. Um, You know, we have lots of things like that that we keep. And that's what the stone would be. Every time someone would see it, it would remind them of this amazing thing that God did when they repented and cried out to him. Hitherto means up to this point. Why are we commemorating this? Why is this a witness? Because up to this point, the Lord has helped us. In other words, Samuel's saying, listen, guys, the Lord has always been there for us. And the only reason we're here right now is because he brought us this far. So let's keep walking with him so he can bring us to the finish line. That's what he's saying. Now, 
If that phrase Ebenezer strikes a chord in your mind, well, that's because the beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount, has a line that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. And that uh, song, uh, that part of that song is based on this verse. And one of the reasons I love to sing that song, it's one of my favorites, is because this isn't just Israel's story. Oh, yes, this was their specific Ebenezer. But we have our own Ebenezers, don't we? Where we can look back and go, God, you've been with me the whole way. And this was a big thing. And Lord, I don't want to stop here. I want to go all the way to the finish line. And I I know I need your help to do that, so I'm going to keep following you. And we all have moments like that. And I think it's important to recognize how the Lord has helped you to get where you are, to remember what he's already done. And so I love that song because it challenges me to do that like anew every time we sing it. And I I don't know about you, but it always makes me stand a little straighter to trust the Lord in the challenges that still lie ahead of me. You know, when I sing that, here I raise my Ebenezer hither, by thy help I have come. Lord, I'm standing here right now singing this song because you've brought me this far. And so, yeah, I've got things in front of me right now that are hard, and I don't know how I'm going to get through them, but you know what? You know what? Hither by thy help, I'm here right now, and you will get me to the finish line. And so when I sing it, it always makes me stand a little bit straighter. I always, you know, want to forge ahead, you know, with the Lord. And so that's what Samuel is desiring to instill in the nation. We've come so far with the Lord's help. Let's keep going all the way to the end. Well, because of this huge victory, Israel is now free from the Philistines. And so the Philistines were subdued. It means to become conquered subjects. Again, how the tide has turned. They became Israel's subjects, and they came no more into the borders of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. As long as Samuel was alive, God fought Israel's battles. And when God fights your battles, you cannot lose. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel, they were all restored to Israel. Uh, From Ekron even unto Gath. And the borders thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Again, now it, it kind of indicates that there's a new deal in place. I don't know what it was where the Philistines were the conquered subjects, but this new deal uh, restored Israel's freedoms. It restored Israel's land. And, and what's so cool is it shows us that what God said and promised would happen is true. He said he would begin to deliver the Philistine, them from the Philistines under Samson, and he did that, but he said he would finish it under Samuel's leadership. And so Samuel's finishing that which Samson started. Now, it mentions here at the end that there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Um, These are different than the Philistines. The Amorites were Canaanite tribes. Um, They were the ones that Israel didn't wipe out, and they were a constant thorn in Israel's side. But it mentions here that none of them messed with Israel during Samuel's leadership. That's how good things were in Israel. Nobody, nobody, none of these other, you know, little small people groups that were always a thorn in Israel's side, none of them uh, messed with, with Israel during Samuel's leadership. And Samuel's leadership was long. It says in verse 15 that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, almost 60 years. That's the longest of any of the judges uh, in the period when they, you know, uh, led Israel. And it mentions here, verse 16, that 
Samuel went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and then Gilgal and then Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Unlike Eli, who just sat on a throne and waited for people to come to him, Samuel was a true servant. You know, he made himself available in central locations for when people had needs. And, you know, this would include, uh, the judging included, making difficult legal decisions if they had matters that in the lower courts, you know, couldn't be solved. They didn't know what God's word had to say about it. They'd come to Samuel. It included having times where he just taught God's word to the people. He had times where people came for prayer and he prayed with them. You know, he made himself available. He, he went to the people and served them. And that's what biblical leadership is about. It's about being a servant, not being served. And then lastly, it mentions verse 17, and his return, Samuel's return, was to Ramah, for that's where his house was. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. So when it says he went in a circuit, he wasn't always, you know, in one of these towns. He did spend a large quantity of time also at home. And so why did he have to return home? Well, three reasons. First off, Samuel wasn't the answer to all of Israel's needs. The Lord was. Samuel's job was to point them in the right direction, not direct their lives. And, and so if, if you serve the Lord in, in, in a leadership role, you know, of any way, um, doesn't have to be here at our church, but if you serve the Lord in a leadership role, your job is to put yourself out of a job. You know, it's to equip those you lead so they can do the same for others, so they can then disciple people on how to lead, who can disciple people on how to lead. Hey, it sounds like a Bible verse, you know. Paul tells Timothy, teach faithful men who will teach faithful men, you know, to be faithful men. And so, you know, that's why. He wasn't supposed to be the rock star, the hero. You know, he was supposed to point them to the Lord. Second reason, serving in ministry never means neglecting your family. Now, Serving in ministry means sacrifices. And, uh, you know, that's something me and Beverly talked about before we got married. We knew that there would be sacrifices, and we were happy to make those sacrifices, and we still are. Um, We knew that that would affect our whole family, and we also knew that God would provide for that, and he has. But serving in ministry doesn't mean neglecting your family. Samuel still had responsibilities as a husband and as a father, And being faithful with that required dedicating time to it. It doesn't just happen. And so if serving in church or outside ministries is more exciting to you than engaging with your spouse or discipling your kids, can I say that your priorities are in the wrong place? I love it when, you know, I see someone's life grow here. It's it's like a great reward, you know. I I love it when people get saved, but I'm a pastor. So my, my greatest joy is seeing, you know, people grow in the Lord, watching them grow in the Lord. It's just, it's, you know, it's a high for me. But my greatest joy, as far as ministry goes, is watching that happen in my kids' lives, watching that happen in my wife's life. That's my greatest joy, and it should be yours too. If it's not, then your love is in the wrong place. You know, you have a mistress, you know, um, called ministry, and and it's in a place it should not be. Third reason, well, it mentions there he built an altar unto the Lord. The third reason he returned home is because Samuel needed to cultivate his own relationship with the Lord. You can't give what you don't have. And even more important, Jesus is our first love, not the stuff we do for Jesus. He is our first love. You know how many times the Lord has had to remind me? He said, Will, I just want you. But God, you know, I want to do really good at this. And, uh, you know, I know I'm not doing a good job. Will, 
I didn't die so you could do a good job of ministry. I died for you. I just want you. And because Samuel happily served others but kept his priorities in the right place, his heart was also in a place where God could help him lead the nation faithfully. So as we close tonight, you know, I ask you, is your heart in a place where God, you know, God can help change your life or use you in service? You know, is it in a place that, that he can help? You know, the, the Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what condition is your heart in? Let's all stand. Lord, I think of the prophet. He cried out to you and he said, Lord, I've heard of your ways. Read about them all the time. I do stand in awe of your deeds. The things you did, they're amazing. But Lord, could you renew them in my day? Oh Lord, how we long to be in a place where we can see you move in our lives, to have hearts that you can help that aren't pride-filled, Lord, that aren't self-sufficient, but rather, Lord, are humble, repentant, loyal to you. We want to see you move in our day. Lord, we have a city that desperately needs to be rescued from you. Many of us have family members that desperately need to be rescued by you. Lord, we don't want anyone to see anyone perish. We know that's your heart too. So Lord, as we reorient our hearts toward you and we humble ourselves before you, we say, would you renew them in our day? Would you send revival to our city, to our nation? Would you send revival to us? Lord, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for the great forgiveness you've given to us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.